This podcast is hosted by R Double P. If you are easily spooked, creeped, or offended, this might not be the podcast for you. Welcome back, everyone, Welcome to I Think My back. Fridge is Haunted. Hello, Lana. Hello, Gemma. How are you? I'm good. It's episode 13. It is. Lucky 13. Can you believe it? No, actually, I can't. <laughs> I got here and I was like, what? The end already? Yeah. End of the season. That's so nice. what we're going to do is we're going to we're gonna do our live show, actually, yes. on the 18th of November. And then um, we'll, we'll be back in the new year at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah I can't wait. What have you been up to anyway? Look, I've been working my little guts out cool. lately. So I, I don't know about you. I saw a comment on a uh, like a Halloween video recently that was Halloween is not Halloweening like it's Halloweened in previous Halloweens. This year, I don't know what it is. I don't know if we're all busy or something's going on. I'm just, I think I said it in a previous episode. I was like, I'm just not feeling Halloween and I'm really upset about it. That's funny you say that because I've been feeling very Halloween. Good, good. Someone (laughs) needs to, needs to pass on like a, was it Supreme? Yeah, (laughs) no, I've been feeling great. You know, very Halloween. I've been having my um, pumpkin spice coffee every day and wearing my little Halloween shirt, as you say. I was going to say, you're looking very Halloweeny got, today. You know, it's bringing me um, so much joy. It's like um, what do you get? Like Robert orange, Smith, yeah. polka dots, and orange. Yeah, it's like orange and black and white stripes. It's very, very cool. You look very, very Halloween like secretary, like businesswoman. I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? What's been going on? I'm good. Look, possums are fine. Everyone's fine. I. <laughs> I've been noticing this weird thing this week. Um, <laughs> so my next door neighbour, uh, it's a share house, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they've got one of those like secret rock things that you put keys in. Uh-huh. And they just, it's just on the front doorstep. What? And I saw it there a couple of days ago and I was like, is that what I think it is? And I went out like, it was there yesterday. It's still there today. And I'm like, is I don't think that's how you're supposed to do <laughs> the secret rock thing. Like, Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're meant to be hidden. That's it's the like, whole point. why don't you just put up a sign and say, the keys are in here. <laughs> this is the secret rock. Because at the end of the day, secret rocks don't actually look like, no. you know, real, real rocks. <laughs> You're supposed to put them in amongst the garden. Yeah, yeah, so you can hide, at least blend, camo, camo. And who just has a rock, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> on their front doorstep? Just for decoration. That's the Halloween decoration. <laughs> I just feel rock. like going, like, you guys are not fooling anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This um, is n- the secret rock is not secrety. <laughs> <laughs> the secret is not secreting, guys. Yeah, oh like, my God. If someone breaks into your house, like, don't come crying yeah, to me. Don't blame anyone but yourself. Because oh, you're well. basic. <laughs> you're basic. Look, we don't claim our share houses to be the smartest places, do we? This is the same house I got angry with because they had this really nice, like, huge peace lily plant, like, oh. in the front window. Mm-hmm. And they've just basically let it die. And I'm walking past, like, every day and it's just getting weepier and weepier and just wilting. And I'm just like, it just needs a really good drink. Like, yeah, yeah, just, just what did they do? Water. They just bought a new plant. No. They just got a whole new plant. I was, like, so pissed off. <laughs> 
She'd have been like, um, I'll take that actually. Thank you. I'll take her. Take her away from you. <laughs> oh my god. Peace lilies always remind me of hot fuzz. Have you ever seen oh, a hot fuzz? Yeah, why? Because yeah. doesn't he have a hot a peace lily? Like he Oh yes! <laughs> yeah. Every time I was like, you know what? I'm gonna watch that movie. <laughs> oh my god, I love it. I love that movie. <laughs> they said I was 54. <laughs> That's really that'll get me in the Holloway mood. That's what I mean. <laughs> uh, Beautiful. You got a fact from Freezer? I certainly do. Facts from Freezer. Facts from the Freezer. <laughs> My fact from the freezer this week, I had plague on the brain. After our big two-part... I thought you were going to say, I had plague. I had plague. That's why I've been Which is down. not a big deal anymore because you can take drugs for it. No, exactly right. But I had plague on the brain. And I remembered I had this book about the dancing plague mm-hmm. of 1518. I was like, you know what? That's pretty cool. And yeah. It's not cool, but you know what I mean. And we were talking about the Black Plague and I thought, you know what? I think this will go well. So my fact this week is about... The Dancing Plague of 1518. Here for it. Right? So the Dancing Plague or the Dancing Epidemic of 1518 was a case of dancing mania. It just sounds like a disco record. Yeah, doesn't dancing it? Dancing Epidemic. Epidemic. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> yeah. But the 70s went off with it. They were like, sweet. <laughs> I'm just saying like, like all these doctors and nurses in surgery and then all of a sudden a disco ball just comes out. It comes down from the ceiling and everyone like rips off their robes and they've all got like sequin dresses on we've got to save them it's a dancing epidemic (laughs) it's spreading yeah yeah that's pretty much what it was i can feel it (laughs) my leg doctor your leg oh no Well, it wasn't as cool as that, but um, this was a case of dancing mania that occurred in uh, Strasbourg or modern day France uh, in the Holy Roman Empire of uh, July 1518. Hang on, isn't Strasbourg modern day Strasbourg? I think it's Strasbourg. I think it is. Isn't that in Germany? I could be saying it as well. I think so. It was in Europe. It was in what we know as France now. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool. So this is also under the Holy Roman Empire during uh, July 1518 to September 1518, so a couple of months. Yeah. Uh, Somewhere between 50 to 400 people took to dancing for weeks. Wow. So on a sweltering summer's day in July 1518, a woman called Frau Trofer steps into a square and begins to dance. So town square. She begins to dance. And at first, uh, those watching, you know, their curiosity was just piqued looking at this unusual behaviour. There was no music going on, just this woman dancing. Mm -hmm. They watched a woman who not only couldn't stop, but she just wouldn't stop dancing. She ended up dancing for nearly a week. Occasionally pausing by exhaustion, but largely unmoved by the body's unmoved, pun intended, but it did not stop. And it didn't show any signs of like, you know, pain, hunger, shame, all of that, which you usually probably would if you were dancing in public, but she just kept going. So I'm wondering what kind of dancing this is. I mean, you know, before the time of the line dance, mm-hmm. the, you know, b- before the bus stop, um, <laughs> <laughs> before the Macarena, uh, I'm, I'm guessing it was some kind of almost like interpretive kind of. Yeah, like a jig. 
I'm saying a jig. Okay, I was I was thinking more be a flower. Oh um, yes, like yeah. moving from the, the body. Yeah, 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 lots of arms going on. Right. Probably, probably it was probably more like um, jolted movements. Right. Like body flinging all around, and it probably wasn't quite dancing. But what you know, if you don't know what's happening, it probably looked like she was just dancing around the square. Almost like having a fit. Yes. But staying upright. Yeah, pretty much. But, How bizarre. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So soon after, though, three dozen others joined in. Okay. By August, the dancing plague had claimed something close to 400 victims. Dancers were beginning to collapse. It's even said that they uh, died from strokes and heart attacks while they were dancing. No one knew the cause of this reaction, which meant uh, no one understood how to remedy it. Well, yeah, medieval Mm. times. Yeah, just a bunch of people dancing around. You're all going... What? Huh? I don't understand. Historical documents, including physician notes, cathedral sermons, local and regional chronicles, and even notes issued by the city council, were all clear that the victims danced. They just didn't know why. So there's lots of lots of references to this happening. Right. Doctors proclaimed that the illness was caused by overheated blood and recommended that the inflicted should continue to shimmy and sway the fever away. Musicians were even called in, and a stage was set up in the town centre to give the dancers more room. So, so the blood was warm, so it was like a, like a fever symptom. Yeah, I think they're assuming that, like, ah, blood's too hot, they've just got to shimmy out this fever, just get rid of it. That doesn't Apparently. make any sense, though, because if you do exercise, you get more warm, mm-hmm. right? This is also the 1500s. So, okay. You know. So they've got the night fever. They've got the, they've got the <laughs> night fever. Musicians are, like, cheering them on. They're probably having a terrible time in right. reality. They're like, help me, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are claims of even halls being refurbished to accommodate the dancing, as well as strong people to help keep those uh, dealing with the dancing mania to stay upright. So they're getting people in to help them stay up to keep dancing. What the hell? Mm-hmm. Expectedly, this backfired. And then the council was forced to ban public dancing. And as more people joined in dancing, it was feared to be punishment from St. Vitus. or And they thought they had to be free of sin. So they thought they were being punished by St. Vitus and they had to keep dancing to free themselves of the sin. Oh, mm-hmm. right. So they're the fun flagellants. Oh, exactly <laughs> right. Um, so many joined into this dancing epidemic as well. And the council went as far to ban music altogether. So by early September, the outbreak began to subside. And when the dancers were sent to a mountain shrine to pray for the absolution, those who were ordered to go to the shrine of St. Vitus wore red shoes that were sprinkled with holy water and they had painted crosses on the tops and the soles of their shoes. They also had to hold small crosses in their hands, incense and Latin incarnations that were part of this ritual. Incantations? Uh, Yes, thank you. (laughs) Um, apparently, eventually, all was forgiven by Vitus. The word spread and, uh, of the successful ritual and the dancing plague ended. Events similar to this are said to have occurred throughout the medieval age, including the 11th century in Saxony, uh, where it was believed to be the result of demonic possession or divine judgment. Okay, so Saxony is mm. like uh, West Coast France? 
I think so. I think? Yeah, I think. I'll have a big old thing. So, again, in France. Yeah, Europe. I think it just across Europe because in the 15th century in Italy, a woman was bitten by a tarantula. The venom made her dance convulsively. That's metal. Yeah, that is that it's whole story cool. is just metal. Isn't it? The only way to cure the bite was to shimmy and have the right sort of music available. My uh, my friend Dave said that he, when he was a kid, he was bitten by a flamingo and that's why he's gay. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> oh, my God. I believe you, Dave. I believe you. That's how we all got here. So modern theories about the dancing plague. Uh, Some believe it was food poisoning. Uh, Some believe the dancing could have been brought on by food poisoning caused by toxins and psychoactive chemicals. Uh, through ergot, uh, ergot fungi. Ah, so mm-hmm. it's the same theory as like that Salem theory of the yes. mold in the bread. That's it. And it made them all crazy. That's exactly right. It actually references the Salem witch trials in right. here. So it grows commonly on the grain, gets made into bread or mold. And what happens with the uh, ergot or the ergot fungi is it's actually what the substance used to originate LSD. Right. Yes. The same kind of thing. And another theory as to what happened was stress-induced mass hysteria. Okay. Yeah. So this could have been an example of fully developed cases of psychogenic movement disorders uh, happening in mass hysteria or mass psychogenic illness, which involves many individuals suddenly exhibiting the same bizarre behavior. The behavior spreads rapidly and broadly in an epidemic pattern. This could have been caused by uh, elevated levels of psychological stress caused by the ruthless years of the people in France. Um, that that were they were suffering. So in Europe, what as well. what else was going on? That's it's, it's a really good question. I um, actually did not write that down. <laughs> um, yeah, because like fifth, what was it fifteen eighteen or yeah. whatever you said? It's about the time of Henry the Seventh in mm. the UK. I have no idea what was going on over the continent. Yeah. So what I can uh, speculate is that it was stress-induced psychosis on a mass level, since the region where the people were dancing were riddled with starvation and disease and inhabited uh, and they were quite superstitious uh, so seven other cases of dancing plague were reported in the same region do, during the medieval time so I'm guessing it's stress if they're starving if they're you know struggling all that kind of thing I think maybe mass induced hysteria is not that far off right yeah super interesting and maybe I can dive into it next season yeah yeah a little bit more because it is super that would be really interesting to go into yeah that was obviously a very broad stroke and I didn't get into the ins and outs of it but I thought that was so interesting and I do have that book at home I'm going to read Reread it, go through it again and just, yeah. Well, if there's a whole book about it, there must be loads of cool parts of the story. Yeah. So um, did people recover from it? It seems like, yes. Like some people just Yeah, that that 50 to 400 is honestly, they don't know. And it's just from different reports. Oh, look, medieval times. It's like how many people died in the plague? It's like 50 50 million to 200 million. Yeah, exactly. Broad strokes. (laughs) Right. Broad strokes. So, yeah, I kind of, I'd love to get into that. But um, That sounds good. Plague was wild times. Wild times. Yeah. 
I don't think there's a plague that wasn't wild. No, no. I think that's <laughs> the point of it, actually. <laughs> so there you go. Well, in my story today, we're going to New York City. So uh, I have a fact about New York City. <gasps> Yay. It's home to the world's largest railway station, Grand Central, and it was completed in 1913. It has 44 platforms over two underground levels. Oh, my God. And it covers 48 acres of land. Oh, my God. That's okay. a massive railway station. That's huge. No wonder people are running all the time in Central Station. How would you even find the platforms? I, I struggle with Richmond, let alone like, <laughs> let alone Central Station. I've gotten lost at the Richmond got, Station so many times. That's got, like, six platforms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this one has 44. Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> that <Richmond>. is huge. <laughs> yeah. They're all long and they all look the same. I don't know what's happening. They do look the same. Now, <laughs> wow. have you ever been to New York? No, sadly. I do have a long-standing fascination with New York, especially the time around Andy Warhol. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the 60s to the 80s. I'm fascinated by um, the music there, the art. Just huge, like, performance art uh, era for yeah. New York as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... The AIDS epidemic happened. A lot of it happened right there in New York City. And that's a really, really tragic but fascinating time in history as well. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we're going today. So my sources today were Criminal Minds Wiki, uh, Wikipedia, Inside Edition YouTube and the Inside Edition website, Murderpedia. Collider.com, Last Call by Elon Green, which is a book that I read, but it wasn't actually any help at all. (laughs) I thought it would be, but it wasn't. Thanks, Um, Elon. (laughs) I'll cover his stuff at at a later stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, an Encyclopedia of Modern Serial Killers, Hunting Humans by Michael Newton. So today we are talking about a killer whose name is not so well known. However, their reputation is shrouded in infamy. Ooh. In 1972, movie director William Friedkin was preparing to make his award-winning masterpiece, The Exorcist, a movie based on a 1971 book by the same name written by William Peter Blatty. Although the book and movie was based loosely on a true-life alleged exorcism, the movie and the making of the movie was notorious for being surrounded in bad luck and was known for potentially being cursed. Ooh, okay. Which we've covered this on the show before, but it's always fun to revisit. There's a few movies like this, (laughs) hey, that allegedly have a curse. Like The Omen. Yeah. um, Yeah. Oh, my God, The Crow. Uh, yes, like that. Yeah. exactly. Mm. The film, released in 1973, was plagued by cast and crew illness and death during filming and around the time of release. The set for the house was destroyed in a fire, reportedly all except for Reagan's bedroom, which remained intact. Whoa. The fire caused production on the film to shut down for six weeks and a priest was called in to bless the set. Fun fact, he was actually asked to do an exorcism and he said, that's a bit extreme, I'm just going to do a blessing. (laughs) That's not needed actually, thank you. According to grunge.com, the weird happenings continued after the film was completed. The initial premiere in Rome provoked something. As the film played in a cinema between two churches, 
<laughs> good, good. <laughs> Lightning bellowed from the sky and a 400-year-old cross was struck, according to the Independent. The cross fell into the piazza like a vengeful spirit's bitter omen. Oh, my God, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Photos or it didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Pics or it didn't happen. (laughs) Nine people associated with the film allegedly died during filming and in the time surrounding the release of the movie. The most well-known is actor Jack McGowan, who played director Burke Dennings. You know The Exorcist, right? Look, to be honest, not very well. Exorcism is like something... Of all the horror I watch, it's something that really irks me. Like, when I went to see Saw, I saw the trailer for the new Exorcist with the two girls. Right. And I was like, it still freaks me out. Oh. It still freaks me out. So, I've seen it, but not for a very long time. So, I'm Mm. really excited to hear about this. The Exorcist is kind of one of the only exorcism movies that's actually scary. Yeah, yeah. I feel like every exorcism movie... It's just such – it's so tropey. Yeah. It's, probably trying to live up to this. I know, but it's just – it's dumb. <laughs> They're just dumb. It's dumb. It's like call a contortionist, put her in a white nighty. Yeah, uh, yeah. Pop some makeup on her. Here we go. Yeah. We turn the room on its side yeah, yeah. so it looks like she's climbing up the walls. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Very cool Hollywood, yeah. but also <laughs> – so uh, Jack McGowan played Burke Dennings, uh, and he he was the fictional director in the movie that was directing the movie within the movie. Yes, yes. He died during a flu outbreak, and also uh, the lady who played Father Karras's mother. Yes. Uh, her name is Vasiliki Maliaros, and she she died before the film was released, but she was ninety. Oh well. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> so Maybe not as suspicious. No. <laughs> but the film has another claim to its cursed reputation. While researching the film, director William Friedkin employed some hospital technicians to act out the process of Reagan's medical tests. Oh. These scenes in the film were, to some viewers, just as disturbing as the exorcism itself. Right. Reagan goes through a series of tests, including what's known as a carotid angiogram or angiography. And it's a test to look at the large blood vessels in your neck that carry blood to your brain. The technician inserts a thin, flexible tube into the blood vessel, sometimes near your groin, but sometimes in your arm, and then injects a contrast dye that makes your arteries visible under x-ray. And then the x-ray images are taken right i see and it's just like the scene is really uncomfortable yeah it sounds uncomfortable yeah and yeah (laughs) so the actors in the film who carried out the tests were real hospital workers okay one of those actors was a man called paul bateson who would be known in notoriety forevermore as the exorcist serial killer Mm, what like What a name to have. Mm. What a name. (laughs) So who is Paul Bateson? Born in, uh, well, 
depending on what you read, uh, he's born in either 1939 or 1940 in Lansdale in the state of Pennsylvania. His father worked as a metallurgist, which I believe is something to do with metal. Mm. Sounds cool. <laughs> or Sounds metal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And his father would force him to listen to opera on the weekends. Although he preferred to go to the movies, Paul was allegedly rarely allowed to go. Allegedly, he also he kind of had a bit of a bitterness towards his father because mm. he oh, wasn't oh. allowed to go to the movies. He wanted to go to the movies. And he allegedly said that appearing in The Exorcist was a kind of revenge to his dad. <laughs> there you go. I'd be pretty pissed off too if there was opera blaring every weekend. Oddly enough, he, he grew up to love opera. Oh, there you go. Yeah. During the early part of the 1960s, Paul Bateson served in the army and while stationed in Germany, de- developed a drinking problem. After he was discharged from the army, he went home to Lansdale and was able to stop his drinking habit for the moment. In 1964, he moved to New York City and began a relationship with a man. Although Bateson claimed that he was, quote, not exclusively gay, the relationship would last for the next nine years. Unfortunately, their relationship seemed to be characterised by a lot of partying and heavy drinking. However, they li- they seemed to like drinking cocktails at places like the Pierre, which was a luxury hotel, and also Fire Island, which is a small island off the, the south shore of Long Island and a holiday location known to be gay friendly um, during this time. It was a really it was really close to New York City, so you could go there for the weekend. Yeah, right. I so suppose, they did that. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like would it be a bit more secluded for, you know, LGBT people? So could they like go and feel a bit more free, I suppose? Yeah. yeah. I think so. Oh, that's nice. Um, and it, Fire Island was featured on one of the more recent uh, seasons of American Horror Story. Yeah, right. Did you see the season that had like the leather killer? Leather killer. And it had um, like there was a tarot reader in it. And to to be honest, I kind of fell off. American okay. Horror Story as well, which I'm um, no help. This today. season is worth watching. <laughs> this season is worth watching because I I fell off in season five and then I came out came back for Roanoke. Mm. I think I started watching Cult and got bored. Yeah, and then I came back for this because it was about New York, sort of that's in the right. 80s. So and that's an era that I'm really interested in. So I watched that season okay. and I really liked it but I can't remember what the season is called I can't remember either I, a hotel is the best thing ever and that's where I stopped <laughs> <laughs> have you not seen Roanoke I've seen parts of Roanoke I like that one yeah you like it mm. I think I did that thing like people were watching half of it because it's kind of split into two like there's two stories yeah I watched the first half and I was like oh yeah that's really really cool love mm. Lady Gaga oh my god right. awesome and then I just didn't go back for the next bit and yeah. um I, I really should see it through it's one of the like my favorite series I just fell off are but- you still watching Lost Oh my god, we're having a break from Lost. Right. <laughs> Bit much. Yeah, we got up to season four and we just. It, That's a good effort. It was a. How many seasons are there? Six. Oh, okay. Six. So we're about halfway, almost done with four, but it was getting just. 
it was doing what everyone said. It was getting too wild. Too I silly. was like, this is silly. Silly is the right word. And we're like, we've been doing these seasons, you know, almost every night. Mm. We're just going to have a quick break from this. But we'll go back. And I will come back with a vengeance. And I'll be like, Lost is the greatest thing I ever made. Apparently, I mean, I remember when it came out and people were like, it's just, it's lost its shit. It's, it's, it's gone crazy. Yeah, yeah. But I think it redeemed itself. Like, people seemed to come back to people, finish it. That was always the thing, right? It always seemed like the ending made up for everything. It right. was like, no, it was a really good end. And I'm like, okay, I want to see what it's about. Because it has gotten to a bit where I'm like, why? I don't understand why. Okay. And it's wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I will see it through and it will happen. But, um, yeah, then then it'll be American Horror Story. I'll get back into it. Maybe tonight I'll start Lost. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. Can you please text me the whole time? And <laughs> 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 like first, finish like the first two episodes and then be like, okay, Lana. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> Maybe we'll record it. Oh my God, that would be so fun. I would love that. <laughs> okay. Where were we? So Fire Island. Mm-hmm. So he and his boyfriend, they um, they did drink a lot. They had their friends over for, for parties quite a long time. But I think it was kind of like, it was kind of not glamorous drinking, but socially acceptable heavy drinking. Yeah, I feel like during that time, partying was probably just like the regular thing to do. Yeah, but it wasn't like partying like orgies and gambling and sleeping in the bin. Mm. It was like... <laughs> I've drank a lot of martinis. Yes, and yes. <laughs> and had, a, had a few like sniffs and all that business. Sniffs, yeah, yeah. yeah when yeah. it's like it's not fun drinking anymore, it's like necessary drinking for them. Yeah, yeah. the start of the night, you're entertaining people with mm-hmm. your witty satire and you know fun stories, yeah. fun stories and stuff, and then it just gets a bit depressing. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know if I can do. I think cocktail nights do turn out like that. As well, <laughs> you start off all glam, and then you're on the floor having dinner with your martini, like, and then he broke up with me. Like, it just where's it, my show? <laughs> I know you took it, you bitch. Like, it just gets messy. Love a cocktail, but like, damn. <laughs> So he, yeah, so he's in New York. He's got this relationship. He's drinking a lot. Uh, He's been there for five or six years. In 1969, his mother died of a stroke. And around this time, his his younger brother also passed away. He died by suicide. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, so. A lot going on. A lot happens all at once. Mm -hmm. Bateson trained as a neurological radiological technician well done that was very well done he was a real smart guy like Mm. he was a very switched on guy and according to colleagues he was very good at his job he was very knowledgeable and he was also really well liked there you go a former colleague commented that they had spoken about their common love of the metropolitan opera but apart from that, little was actually known about Bateson's personal life. Yeah. Uh, the, the guy that he worked with basically said, we came to work, you know, we had little chats about things, but we didn't really know what happened when he went home. And he didn't know what happened when we went home, but, mm. but we really liked him, well, essentially. Not a quote, but that was the <laughs> gist. <Yeah>. The gist. <laughs> <laughs> After Bateson's relationship ended in 1973... 
And I have to just like make a note here. There's not a lot of information about this case. Yeah. So we don't have the boyfriend's name. We don't know anything about the boyfriend. We don't know a lot about Bateson's early life. Yes. Uh, I did try to look to see if there were any books about it or even books that had chapters about it. A lot of this is pretty tenuous research. Yeah, and uh, like uh, of the time, there probably wasn't a lot kept on um, the LGBTQ community. Right. They weren't interested. They didn't want to um, probably put any positive information out about these people's lives, which yes. is so unfortunate. Yes. Uh, so after Bateson's relationship ended in 1973, he moved to Brooklyn and worked at the New York City University Medical Center, where he was chosen by director William Friedkin, along with another colleague, to appear in The Exorcist. After this, however, his drinking again became a problem. Mm, getting into the, like the actor life. I don't know if it was that. We can come back to this, but mm. is it part of the exorcist curse? No. Who knows? Very true. Uh, and because he was drinking so much, the medical centre fired him and he moved over to Greenwich Village where he did cleaning and repair jobs. He also worked in a ticket booth at a porno theatre. Uh-huh. During this time, he began attending AA meetings and he got sober for a short time, which is great. Mm-hmm. It was said by some of uh, other people in the LGBT community that he was actively looking for another relationship to get into. So he's trying to pull his life together. Yeah. But in 1977, he was drinking more than ever. Almost a litre of vodka every day. Oh, my God. Which caused him to become tired and lethargic. When he was able to make it out, he began going to leather bars, later saying, leather impresses me. (laughs) So a couple of the leather bars at the time were called the Mineshaft and the Anvil. (laughs) And That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leather bars were just like yeah, you know, very exclusive and very sort of I don't know, like a, a manly establishment. I'll imagine so manly, <laughs> so manly, so manly. <laughs> exclusive though. Like very, very have to be a man. Oh. <laughs> it's a shame, isn't it? No. Kind of the point. <laughs> That's kind of the point. <laughs> So let's talk about the gay scene in New York City in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. The New York gay nightclub scene in the 1970s is a time that was characterised by both pride and fear, I think. The Stonewall riots had taken place in June of 1969 and had introduced the LGBTQIA world not only to New York City but to the country. It was the beginning of an important time of visibility for the gay community, but it was by no means safe. No, absolutely not. There was a huge amount of prejudice against LGBTQ plus people and members of the community were regularly attacked, beaten and even killed as part of extreme hate crimes. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? Like... Just leave each other alone. And it happened a lot. A lot. And I feel like, just based on my research, people were left to their own devices to clean up the mess of these crimes. And uh, in some cases, just to keep the word out there that dangerous things are happening to our community, the media's not talking about it. Mm -hmm. You've got to look after yourself. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think... um 
on that note, I believe Paris is Burning, the the documentary film about actually what like the community you're talking about had mm-hmm. its anniversary. I think it was yesterday, mm-hmm. and I don't want to guess which. Uh, date which anniversary it was but it did and it's such an important documentary have you seen paris is burning i've seen paris is burning about 57 times yeah well i don't need to tell you (laughs) (laughs) i loved it i really really loved being able to see their history through through their eyes as well it's It's the most amazing documentary highly recommend Um, and venus extravaganza is on my list to cover as well (gasps) fabulous so the 1970s not a safe time Uh, if you're gay in New York City. I think also, as we've seen in TV shows like Pose, which it's funny that you mentioned Paris is Burning because Pose is based on Paris is Burning. Yeah. Have you watched Pose? I have watched Pose. It's amazing. It is amazing. It's it's so cool um, to see... Like it basically Paris is burning extended, right? Like just seeing all of them, and the characters are so good. Yeah, and it's fun because like you're like oh, like you know, Electra's supposed to be this character, and Mm -hmm. you know, because all the stuff that they go through is based on real life stuff that happened. So good. So uh, many people from around the country came to New York City to live their lives as their true selves after being kicked out of home for being gay or for being trans. So people would use New York City as a place where they could find other people like themselves. Yeah, yeah, safe space. And escape oppression. Yeah. When they came to New York, they were sometimes able to find a group or a chosen family, maybe even settle down with a partner. And sometimes along with that move to New York came great nightlife and parties. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) However, to quote Michael Musto, The 1970s was a sexual revolution for everybody, particularly gay men. This was after the 1969 Stonewall Rebellion, which defined the modern gay movement and sort of led to a lot more freedom and visibility. And it was before AIDS reared its ugly head in the early 80s. Sex was everywhere. For gay men, it was not only in bars. There was sex in trucks, sex on the pier, sex was in the air, and people were certainly taking advantage of it. So Michael Musto is the legendary reporter for New York paper, The Village Voice, which was read by members of the art scene, music, performance, people of the LGBT community, drag artists to live in the Greenwich Village area. It was just a really important newspaper for, it was kind of like the Facebook of the time, really, before the internet, the Village Voice was how you read what was happening in the, in, in the city. Yeah, keeping connected. Keeping connected. Real sense of And community. it had, like, um, a classifier section as well. So, you know, if people wanted to get a job, if they wanted to meet someone, if whatever, the Village Voice connected people. Oh, wow. There you go. According to the Village Voice website, founded by Dan Wolfe, Ed Fancher and Norman Mailer in 1955, the Village Voice introduced free-form, high-spirited and passionate journalism into the public discourse. And you know it's serious when the word discourse is oh, used. Oh, yes, very. As the nation's first alternative news weekly, The Voice today carries on the same tradition of no-holds-barred reporting and criticism it embraced when it began publishing 60 years ago. 
the recipient of three Pulitzer Prizes, the National Press Foundation Award and the George Polk Award, The Voice remains a vigilant investigative watchdog and a go-to source for coverage of New York's vast cultural landscape. Wow. So that gives you an idea of what The Village Voice was and how important it was yeah. to the community. Many wonderful, colourful people lived in Greenwich Village at this time, and it was a legendary area for art and culture. But even if the, in the time before AIDS, the city was not without danger. In 1975 and 1976, or again, according to the article that you read, <laughs> some, <laughs> sometime between 1975 and 1978... Mm-hmm. No less than six dismembered male bodies were found in bags and dumped in the Hudson River. This case, to this day, has never been solved. And the men, to this day, are still John Doe's. (gasps) No. Oh, that's awful. Um, It was surmised that these guys were were, uh, from the gay community Mm -hmm. as well. So this is another reason why... The community was in danger. Yes, but let's look at let's look at another murder that happened around that time. On September fourteenth, nineteen seventy seven, journalist Addison Verrill was found savagely beaten in his apartment. His skull was allegedly crushed, and he was also stabbed in the heart. So Addison Verrill, he wrote about the film industry for Variety magazine and he was well known within the gay community. So one of his friends, Arthur Bell, who was also a well-respected columnist and a reporter for The Village Voice, he wrote about the murder because they were friends and he was angry. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, The community probably needed to know about something exactly. like this as well. It sounds like a very passionate attack. Right. Although police believed the motive could have been robbery, Arthur Bell disagreed as nothing obvious had been taken. Plus, there was no evidence of forced entry. Hmm. Addison Verrill probably knew his attacker and there was evidence that drinking had been taking place because there were cans and half-full glasses around the apartment. Right, okay. Arthur Bell decided to write an article about the case in the Village Voice. He wanted people to look at the issue of gay men being killed in New York and no one was really looking at the cases because they would brush them off as gay situations or uh, it's a it's a lover's crime of passion cool. or yeah. and the police didn't really want anything to do with it and the media didn't want anything to do with it. Mm. So the mainstream media was not doing much to cover the murder of Addison. So when so Arthur had taken it upon himself to look into the case and cover it where other reporters would not. Arthur wrote that Addison Verrill had been at the Mineshaft nightclub until 6am the morning he died. After the article comes out, he gets a call from a person who does not tell him their name. But what they do say is that they killed Addison Verrill. <gasps> after meeting him at a club. So that means that this person on the phone was at the mine shaft that night. Yeah, right, okay. They'd gone back to Verrill's apartment before dawn, did some drugs, and essentially they had a one-night stand. Yeah, yeah. The person on the phone says that they became enraged because they had been looking for a committed relationship. And after finding out that Verrill was not interested in taking their date any further... 
They took a frying pan and beat him to death before stabbing him in the heart and leaving the apartment. Yeah, like a totally normal reaction to being rejected. Right. Like, what the fuck? So, interestingly, the caller wanted to make it very clear to Arthur Bell that they were not a psychopath. (laughs) Yeah, I just beat him with a frying pan and stabbed him, but I'm not a psycho. Mm. So Arthur Bell goes to the police with this new development and they take him very seriously because the caller had details of the case that had not been released to the public or the media. Okay. Very soon, Arthur gets another call from a person who calls himself Mitch. And what Mitch says is that he knows exactly who committed this murder. It's a guy called Paul Bateson. Right. It's all coming together. Mm Mm-hmm. So on... September 23, 1977, so it's like nine days later, the police go to Bateson's apartment and they find him there and he's absolutely wasted. Mm. He indicates to police that they must be there about the Village Voice article. They apprehend him and take him into custody and later he admits to killing Addison Verrill. So, we often hear Paul Bateson referred to as the exorcist serial killer. But was Paul Bateson actually a serial killer or is this just a true crime myth? Mm. Let's look at some of the contributing factors of what leads people to believe this could be the case. During the investigation of Addison's murder, police were interested to know if there was a connection between that crime and the series of bodies that had been turning up in the Hudson River that were also connected to the LGBTQIA plus community. So let's look at these six murders. The murders as well, yeah. According to Inside Edition, during 1975 and 1976, the dismembered bodies of six men were found in the Hudson River. However, according to author Michael Newton, the bodies were found in 1977 and 1978. Okay. So this is how much coverage... Yeah, this case got. No one even knows when it happened. Yeah, exactly. Very convoluted, isn't it? He went on to say, and I must preface that I didn't get time to actually, I wanted to go through the Village Voice archives, but I didn't get time. So uh, apologies, Village Voice. I will do it. Yes, yes, we will come (laughs) back to that. He went on to say, New York homosexuals were terrorised by a series of what they called bag murders in which six male victims were mutilated and dismembered, their remains wrapped in black plastic bags and dumped in the Hudson River. Some of the grisly fragments washed up on the New Jersey shore, others coming to ground near the World Trade Centre. Okay. So they travelled a fair way. Yeah, that's a distance. Yeah. Wow. Police traced items of recovered clothing to a shop in Greenwich Village uh, that reportedly um, had a gay clientele. And distinctive tattoos identified one of the victims as a known gay man. Yes. Because there were no identities or... But this is where... Apparently none of... The corpses had identities. Yeah, that's what I But someone said, I recognise that tattoo. Yeah, I know who that is. My mate. Stew or whatever. Yeah, we know that guy. So I feel like this case could be solved if someone just sat down. Mm. Um, Probably wouldn't take much to go through. Well, at the time, it might be a little bit more difficult now, but I'm sure... 
I feel like it's one of those ones where, like, if you called and said, look, can I see the file? I'd be like, oh, it's gone missing. Uh, yeah, no one knows where it is. It's in a box at the very back. Sorry. Probably. Yeah. Or maybe it was just gone. Thrown away. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So another thing that happened was the bags that the body parts were in reportedly had the logo of the New York City Medical Center's neuropsychiatric unit on them. Okay. And that's where Paul had previously worked. Okay. But that's reportedly. Okay, so uh, allegedly. 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 The bags had the logo on them. Right. In addition, the coroner said that the perpetrator had knowledge of anatomy. So was this, this is my question, was this why Bateson's drinking, partying and drug use had escalated in recent times? Yeah. Feeling guilty, possibly? You know, it, like maybe it's that, that whole like, you know, Dennis Nilsson, Jeffrey Dahmer thing. Like we got to stay perpetually wasted. Yeah, yeah. Don't want Because of voices. all this stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. Convicted of second degree murder relating to the homicide of Addison Verrill on March 5th, 1979, Bateson was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. He was released on parole in 2003 after 24 years and three months and remained on parole for five years after that. He reportedly died in 2012. Right. While in custody awaiting trial, Paul Bateson allegedly told director William Friedkin during a prison visit that he had carried out the bag murders, but this comment ever taking place was never proven Mm. and Bateson was never charged with the six other crimes. So the bag murders technically remain unsolved with all victims remaining John Doe's. Yes. Uh, and so William Friedkin, the, the director of The Exorcist, he he did keep contact with Paul Bateson. Yeah, having a, a visit. Yeah. Yeah. And he actually later directed a movie called Cruising. Oh, yes. And that was, I, I think it had um, Al Pacino in it. Yeah. Was it Al Pacino? That sounds As really a, familiar. A guy that goes undercover into, like, the gay leather scene. Yeah. Yeah. That... Yeah, maybe we'll look that up because that sounds really, really familiar. Oh, and goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) So, personally, I don't think that Paul Bateson committed the bag murders. He was found too easily after killing Addison. Yeah. Plus, he obviously told someone about murdering Addison Verrill because of the Mitch phone call. I mean, someone called the village voice and said, I know who did it. And he was arrested within nine days. Right. This guy's not killing six people. And getting away with it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If he had killed six others, why didn't he tell people about committing those murders too? And why didn't he call the village voice about those cases? Because the village voice were writing about that too. Yeah, exactly. They weren't just writing about Addison Beryl. So allegedly that phone call from someone that didn't use it, their name that we think who's not a psychopath not a psychopath was paul is that what we're saying yes yeah yeah so you know he needing to confess like yes how yeah. do you go from yeah six others and then the seventh he's like you know what that's too much which by its very definition maybe he wasn't a psychopath if maybe. he's calling and confessing that's true well maybe he was telling the truth <laughs> <laughs> So the prosecutor in the Addison trial 
claim. Oh, and what? And when he when he spoke to the village voice, when, why didn't he say yes? I killed Addison Verrill. Plus, <laughs> there's also, some other stuff. P.S. Yeah, um, some others. Yeah. You might have heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you did. You wrote about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those ones. That yeah. was me. Yeah. So the prosecutor in the Addison trial claimed that Bateson had bragged to others about committing the bad bag murders, but there is never any ev- evidence to pin him to the murders. Mm-hmm. When, you know, when the prosecutor said, this guy's been bragging about this stuff, it's kind of, it's just hearsay. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, (laughs) yeah, the director, uh, William Friedkin, was allegedly inspired by this story based on his connection to Bateson to make the film Cruising, and that came out in 1980. Mm -hmm. So the timeline is very clear. Yes. Uh, It was based on a novel released in 1970 and included in part aspects of the Leather Underground in New York. The film was condemned by the gay community. Oh. So that is the story of Paul Bateson, as much as I can find about it anyway. Yes. Uh, So when people say the exorcist serial killer or that serial killer that was in the exorcist or did you know that there was a serial killer in the exorcist you can say was there though well actually yeah exactly was there though we they don't know we don't know maybe if there was more information we need more context we need more context so that we can make a clearer Mm. judgment well i feel like because we're podcasters that's what we do we judge exactly right we need all the facts (laughs) but i bet like talking about saying oh there was a serial killer in the exorcist it does make for a very good um like myth yeah, it may, it's it adds to that curse. Yeah, story loves a bit of myth, a bit of that. Like it'd be easy to run away with, but it'd be nice to see this solved, wouldn't it? It would be. It would be. I, and I just don't understand why someone has said I recognize. That. Well, maybe someone saw the tattoo and they said I recognize that guy. I met him at a gay club, but I don't know his name. Yeah, it could be like, oh, I've seen him around. He's part of like that community, something like but that. But a simple door knock. Yeah, exactly. Someone's going to know that guy. Exactly. Someone. And like no one else had any. Did anyone go pictures? to the bar and say, hey, barkeep, did you know a guy with. Have you seen this tattoo? This tattoo. Yeah, yeah. As you said before, like it sounds like no one really wanted to be involved with it though. Like they didn't care. Like. It's it's really unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, like, and I know how far you research, and for that to be what you could find, it, it's for these measly morsels to be yes. all that is, <laughs> all that is presented. Oh, that's it. Oh, well, and, and it needs to be spoken about more. And who knows? Who knows? The more we talk about these things, the closer we get. Hopefully, maybe, maybe. Mm. Maybe we'll come back with an update and we're like, we found more. Yeah, yeah. That would be great. Look, there's a stack more that I could say about this very, very interesting time in New York City. Mm. Uh, I will revisit New York at a a later stage. Mm -hmm. There is another serial killer that uh, targeted gay men that happened in the 90s. 
And okay, that yeah. was called The Last Call Murders. Yeah, okay. So that book by Elon Green, um, I, I will be sort of condensing that into a podcast at some point as well. Beautiful. And it was called the, the Last Call Murders because the the last the, the bartender would call last drinks, like last call. Ah. And apparently the victims would be from that the remaining people in the bar. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. That's for a later date. Next season. Next season. Woo-hoo. Season seven. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I can't believe this is it. We've done it. We mm. did it. Thank you for telling that story. That was um, it was really good. I like it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I always, always happy to listen. So, you guys, when this comes out, will this come out before the live show? I think it will. Like the week before. Yeah, I believe so. Is that correct, Chris? I think that's what we've worked out. Uh, that one, that one. Yeah, it, it'll just it probably be the week before, which is very exciting. All right. Well, do you want to do you want to refresh everyone's memory on what's happening on that day? Absolutely. So, everyone, on Saturday the eighteenth of eighteenth of November at four p.m., we are doing. I think my fridge is haunted live. Boo, boo, boo. So we're doing a live podcast recording at Old Cult in Frankston, an awesome alternative culture store. Um, I couldn't believe I didn't know about it sooner. Alternative culture store. That's right. It's a goth shop. (laughs) (laughs) It's possibly the coolest goth shop I've ever been to. Goth shop, metal shop. Metal. It's got pop culture, like witchy things. If you like earrings that look like coffins, if you like Ouija boards, if if you you like skulls, if you like candles that look like skulls, if you like tarot cards, if you... They've got an Exorcist T-shirt that I want. Yeah. Oh my god, they do, don't they? Right. I like the um the glass cabinets with all the the Ouija boards in it, and mm-hmm. you know, oddities, oddities, I little like oddities, oddities. obnoxious got, T-shirts. Oh yeah. If you've got piercings and you want a new piece of bling, you can absolutely get it there. If you need contacts, um, makeup, everything, they've got everything. Yeah. So we're going to be in that big beautiful window. We're going to be doing our live podcast for 4, 4 p.m. sharp. 4 p.m. sharp. 4 p.m. sharp. I say that now, being like the latest person. I know. I was going to say sharp unless I'm late. <laughs> unless we're all late. <laughs> unless we're shopping. Unless we're shopping. I'll be um, getting ice cream. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> But you can come and watch this awesome free event as well and be with us while we record the podcast. If you have any spooky stories or something you'd like to share with us, send it to our Gmail so we can share on the day. Yes, write us your spooky stories or weird stories. Um, maybe you have a connection to a crime that happened. Yes. Tell us about it and we will. We want to talk about that at our live show. Absolutely. Maybe you lived in a haunted house and oh, weird things happened. I want to know. I we gots to know. We gots to know. Mm-hmm. So email us at hauntedfridges at gmail.com and send us your stories because we'd love to share and we'd love to see you there. There's going to be like, it's for actually as well, Alt Cult's fifth anniversary as well. Mm-hmm. It's over the weekend. So we're going to be celebrating the store. We're going to have a it's lot of fun. interesting actually because Tuesday is the podcast's fourth birthday. What? Yeah. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> Chris is like, I should probably have known that. It's Halloween. Halloween's our birthday. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> yeah, she's like, like, oh, mm, yeah. Oh, yes, that's right. Oh, well, oh, my gosh. At the time of recording, this, this a few days away. How exciting. Yep. Oh, my God. Well, as, as the newbie here, congratulations. Congratulations to you too. I'm so excited. This is a really nice <laughs> kind of little segue. I don't want to get too emotional, but I want to say thank you so much to you, Gemma, and to you, Chris, for um, bringing me on board. I have had the best time. I've had the best time oh, thank you. recording the podcast. It has been so fun and it's really like opened up a passion that I suspected I always had, but I really do have it now. And I've found a bit of a bit of purpose in my life. I really, really love it. So thank you so much. And thank you all for um, everyone listening, for welcoming, welcoming me, me, me. Well, people have welcoming. certainly been telling me good things about the, uh, they say, you know, they really like Lana, they really yeah. like the new co-host, and it's yeah. it's really um it's flattering nice. and humbling to hear everyone <laughs> liking me on board, and um I just want to say thank you to you and to the community. So I can't wait to get into it, do our live show, and then have a little bit of a break, a little bit of a break, a reprise, yeah, and then get into the next season. I'm so excited. Yeah, there's so much more to talk about. Oh my god, so I've got a couple more sort of epics to bring next season mm-hmm. as well i'm thinking that i've i've got a bit of a two-parter i've got a two-parter in mind i'm really excited so that would be fun two-parter. i know baby's oh first God. two-parter <laughs> need the guidance although the riots in tilly and kate was kind of a two-parter yeah i would say so connected yeah, yeah, connected. yeah, yeah. um yeah. it's been so fun to talk about these stories i've been i said it at the time but like i've just been so obsessed with it so long <laughs> and just to be able to talk about Something that's so passionate and to do something like this is um, is a dream come true. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate Hashtag it. Hashtag high five. And you can tell us all about it. You can tell us what you love this season, what you want to see next season. Jump on all our socials. They're all at I Think My Fridge Is Haunted. And, um, yeah, we'd love to chat over summer. Yeah. So until next season, please neuter your cats because I'm, <laughs> I'm sick of that shit. Um, cats. Look, look after them. Put your secret rock in a secret place. Put it in a secret place. I'm, I'm sick of seeing that too. Stop giving bananas to possums, Louis. I, <laughs> <laughs> I know you. I know you want it, but like, let's enough is enough. Um, Dad, I will not be stopped saying like or uh, apologizing for research. What else has happened this season? <laughs> Enjoy the end of this year. Yeah, enjoy the end of the year. It's been a hell of a year, I think, for everyone. Yeah. And um, it's it, I've got that end of year vibes. I think we're all crawling along. Yeah. Thriving, thriving, yeah. obviously, but lots of rest in between. But have a beautiful Christmas, a New Year's. Enjoy. <laughs> and you might get a surprise little <gasps> bonus episode over the holiday season as well. If you're lucky. If you come to the live show, come on. Come on down. Give us the encouragement, <laughs> the validation we need. <laughs> Till next time, everyone. Be creepy. But don't be a creep. Woo! Bye. <laughs>